It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ohioans go to the polls today to vote on issue one. What's at stake? CPO Channel 9 Cincinnati has details. Issue one would make it harder to change the state constitution. Here's how. Under issue one, any constitutional amendment on the ballot would need a 60% supermajority to pass, rather than the 50% plus one simple majority currently required. Not getting it? CPO Channel 9 Cincinnati really, really holds your hand on this one. That means if issue one is passed and in a future election, 59% of voters were in favor of a change to the Constitution, that change would not go into effect. Reason why Ohioans are being asked today of all days to consider whether their century-long amendments process rule needs to change is abortion. Ohio has a Republican governor, House, and Senate. They passed a six-week abortion ban pretty easily, but the courts there have upheld laws allowing abortion up to 22 weeks. However, a constitutional amendment is passed in many states even more conservative than Ohio could allow access to abortion as a right taking the decision out of the hands of the Republicans who pass all the laws. And as we know, it only takes 50% of the vote in a referendum to pass a constitutional amendment in Ohio, or did up to and including issue one. So I don't have to spell out why raising the threshold to 60% like issue one would do would stymie the efforts of reproductive rights activists. I don't have to spell it out. But WCPO Channel 9 Cincinnati does have to spell it out for some of their viewers. And while issue one doesn't say anything directly about abortion, experts say it would have an impact on the results of the November election. Because if issue one passes, that ballot measure would need 60% of the vote to pass. So again, if it takes 60% to pass an amendment and you get 51%, that amendment will or won't, won't pass. Okay. What about 52? Also won't. Let's tick it up to 57. What now? No, also won't pass. Okay, how about more than 59%? Oh, all right. You think, well, more than 59%. That'd be okay. Sorry, it's a trick question. I'm not sure you knew this. I assume some viewers of a certain ABC Cincinnati affiliate might not. But there actually are numbers higher than 59, but also lower than 60. 59 Point nine is such a number. You ever hear of that? The point nines. I would be really impressed if the forces behind issue one, which are also the forces against abortion in Cincinnati, would say, you know what? Principles apply. That's why we're trying to ban abortion, because of principles. And therefore, because we have principles, we are not going to enact into law the new amendment process unless issue one gets 60%. Because the principle is that the will of the people on important matters is only legitimate at 60%. And so we enact this action into law. And so can we possibly enact this action into law with 51% of the vote? It seems a little wrong, doesn't it? It seems, I'd say about 58.8% wrong, which as the leaders of Ohio politics will tell you is not even close to wrong enough to actually do anything about. On the show today, the greatest plastics abatement program in the history of the oceans, the secret, counting accurately. But first, you've heard from Joe Lauro and even people who aren't actually getting paid to defend Donald Trump that the only way the former president is being convicted of the crimes around the election is that he has to be proven to have lied. He has to actually think he actually lost and there is no way you're going to be able to prove that. Well, you know what? 
My next guest, David French, says those people saying that, Lauro and others, are right, but also wrong. New York Times columnist David French teases out the ambivalence up next. David French is a New York Times opinion columnist. Before that, he was senior editor at The Dispatch, where he was still the co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast. I'll give you a summary of what his takes were on the three indictments. The New York indictment of Donald Trump it prompted an eye roll. The <laughs> documents indictment of Donald Trump, it prompted a serious nod of the head. And the latest indictment of Donald Trump well, it's caused paroxysms of ambivalence and then rage. At first, he was very, very torn because it, this indictment rests on facts that might be hard to prove. And then he was torn in the other direction when people began describing the indictment in ways that were entirely inaccurate so as to suit their political priors, which <laughs> always happens. David French joins me again on The Gist. David, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So in this interview, we are going to get into your state of mind, which, by the way, is your entire thesis on what makes this indictment a little dicey, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I've... I've been vexed a few times uh, when, A, reading the indictment for a couple of reasons. One primary reason is reliving how outrageously horrible Trump's conduct was. Um, B, as I realized that, you know, look, although it is absolutely clear that Trump's conduct was completely unacceptable, the legal uh, argument surrounding, you know, the argument surrounding the criminality of his conduct let me just put it this way, is a heavier lift to establish than the criminality in the documents case, which is very, very, very cut and dry. And in a weird way, it almost spoiled us for the content coming out of Jack Smith's office that it would just be A and B and C equals D. You know, the, the, documents, the documents case was very, very, very clean. But the January 6th case is light years ahead of the Manhattan case. In its the the Stormy Daniels hush, hush money case, in both its severity and its convincing arguments. So, if you put the right. documents case at the top of the mountain, the uh, the the January sixth case, though extraordinarily severe in describing horrific actions, is not at that same peak as far as the simplicity and the directness of the case. So the prosecutor will have to prove for each of the four charges in the current case that Donald Trump not only did wrong, but that he knew he was doing wrong, i.e. he knew he was pursuing a legal strategy that was illegal in that he did not win the election. This is not impossible to do, but the prosecutor does have to do it. And people who are arguing that the standard that the prosecutor has to meet is something like he knew or should have known that he won the election, that's wrong. You have to prove that he knew, right? Yeah, you have to prove that he knew. Um, so each one of these each one of these counts has an intent element. So for example, if you sort of walk through them, the fraud, the fraud statute, a fraud is not a synonym for a mistake. In other words, it's not oops. <laughs> a fraud requires you to have knowing, to be conscious of, of the fact that you are promulgating a falsehood. Okay. 
Uh, this is something like, you know, let's take consumer fraud, for example. Consumer fraud isn't like a mistake. A selling used car that you thought had never, ever been in an accident and you had, turns out it was. That's a mistake. It's not fraud, right, for example. But if you knew a car was in an accident and you said to a buyer, oh, no, this thing's never been scratched, well, that's fraud. You are in, you're lying and you're inducing someone uh, to purchase the car. The other, such as obstruction of official proceedings or 18 U.S.C. Section 241, conspiracy against rights, all of these require a corrupt purpose. They they require a degree of corruption where, for example, in 18 U.S.C. Section 241, which is a con the conspiracy against rights statute, this is something where you, you have to know that you are violating someone's rights, that this is... Uh, and, and the intent element is not just, well, I intended to submit the slate of fake electors. The intent element has to be, no, I'm intending to injure or violate rights. So here's a quote from a law review article that's summarizing all this stuff. And it says that a Supreme Court case called Guest established that to be guilty under Section 241, the defendant must act with a specific purpose to deprive someone of a federally guaranteed right, not merely the purpose to commit the act that causes the deprivation. And similarly, with the obstruction of official proceedings counts, there's got to be a corruption element to it. So, the, the title seems to be, well, he disrupted the official proceeding, but the, the uh, text of the law does say, well, why? If you did it for a legitimate purpose, um, right. then it's not illegal. Right. Or right. a purpose even that you thought was legitimate. Right, exactly. So I, there's actually an example from history, not regarding the obstruction of official proceedings, but regarding the fake elector slate. So in 1960, it was not known who won Hawaii for quite some time. And because both the Republicans and Democrats didn't know who was going to prevail in Hawaii, they created two different slates of electors, a Democratic slate and a Republican slate. And then ultimately, when John F. Kennedy prevailed in the count, then there was a third slate that was submitted, the f sort of final Democratic slate. Well, and Richard Nixon, as vice president, accepted that slate. Kennedy won the election. But there was no criminal intent there. It was a contingency. There, there, People did not yet know who was going to win the uh, that election and the fact that the Republican slate and even the initial Democratic slate didn't prove to be the slate was not a crime. That that wasn't a crime. Now, I do want to ask you about one of the arguments that John Lauro, who is Trump's lawyer, who has done all the interviews, he's putting out two main arguments and you and others have dispatched with, oh, pun, have dispatched mm -hmm. with one of them, which is the free speech First Amendment argument. You could say words that are illegal. I guess John Lauro doesn't right. want us to know this, right? So that's, so Trump said words, and I guess John Lauro is saying, because they are words he said, uh, they can't be illegal. That is wrong. But he has also been saying, and I want what your take on this is. He is free as a citizen to say words, uh, that's the First Amendment, and to petition the government. What I took him to mean by that phrase, which he has used over and over again, is to concoct this slate of electors. Right. That is petitioning the government or to jawbone the uh, governor of Georgia. That is petitioning the government. Do you? Can you give your analysis on uh, why he's wrong, if you think he is, yeah. about his ultimate right to petition the government? Yeah. So 
Look, there's a spectrum of conduct here. And as, as as I was reading the indictment, the free speech argument was stronger in some respects and weaker in others. So where it's the strongest is where Trump is getting on the phone and saying, look, I won the election. I won the election. Hold this thing up. I won the election. That's where it's strongest, this jawboning element of it. Um, because, yeah, as a general matter, as a general matter, you do have the ability to ask the government to take action or refrain from taking action. And you don't have a legal, you have a moral obligation of truthfulness. But one of the things that kind of surprises a lot of people is that lies are illegal only in some pretty confined circumstances. It's, there actually is, um, there's actually lies as, as a general matter are often constitutionally protected. So there is an ability to ask the court to take action or to ask the government to take action or refrain from taking action. There, you, there, you're even going to have in some circumstances constitutional protection for saying false things to government officials. Where it gets much worse for Trump is when you start seeing actions being taken. So for example, a fake electors, let's say I voted in... in one precinct in my county and mm -hmm. I walk up and I try to cast a second vote. That's not petitioning the government. Right. That, that's vote fraud. Right. Okay. So when you submit or, and as, as Jack Smith alleged that he did, when you direct as part of a conspiracy, the submission of fake votes, that's not free speech. That's not petitioning the government for redress of grievances. Now, the one area where they might have a point is if you say, okay, it's the Hawaii type situation where you say, well, we have a legal challenge pending. And while the legal challenge is pending, we're going to get a slate of electors together that in case we win the legal challenge, they'll submit the vote. So that contingency is not going to be unlawful. But if what what actually happens is they tried to submit fake votes. That's the big legal issue that he has. And then the other one is jawboning cannot go into coercion. So um, the fact that, say, for example, I hold you up, let's say I mug you and I say your money or your life. The fact that I'm saying words, does that turn that does not turn that into First Amendment protected expression because right. the words are part of the crime. And where would that become really relevant in this indictment? Well, most notably when he's talking to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia secretary of state, and he, he says, find me 11,780 votes. And then what's crucial, he then says, you know, he says to Raffensperger that he could face criminal penalties. And this is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. This is the head of the executive branch, which runs the department of justice on a matter where the Department of Justice vote fraud would theoretically have jurisdiction. And let's look at it this way. Let's say you're a small town sheriff and you lost your election by 40 votes and you go to the county election commissioner and you say, you need to find me 41 votes or you might find yourself in handcuffs. That yeah. small town, uh, uh, you know, that small town sheriff would already be arrested and it would not be controversial. Right. Right. So the, that's, those are the two big vulnerabilities in Trump's argument. One is the fake electors. Uh, if you look at the Michigan state case against the fake Michigan electors, these guys falsely certified 
that they were the genuine article. Yeah. And the I only mean, reason they, a bunch, of, from what I understand, a, the only reason that they brought that case in Michigan and not in other cases, it's some states just don't have laws against that. They didn't conceive that this might be a problem. I, From what I understand, the attorney general of Nevada was exactly looking into this. And he said, uh, a Democrat, and he said, uh, I just don't see that. I don't see the statute to charge them with. Yeah, the the Michigan case is one of these cases that's really pretty neat and clean on its own because Michigan criminalizes. This is essentially a forgery case in Michigan. It's it's criminalizing certain kinds of false uh, attestations to the Michigan state government. And so these fake electors signed these false statements falsely saying that they are were genuine electors and some of the other slate elector slates didn't do all the same things. So you really have to break it down and say in this state, the fake electors didn't go all the way and didn't actually try to submit it to, you know, the state and to the federal government or in this other state, they did go all the way, you know, so there's distinctions. So I want to go back to the premise, the promulgated, widely promulgated by Trump defender premise that Jack Smith has to prove that Trump intended to commit these crimes and he'll never be able to prove it. We've spent most of our time talking about the first clause. It's the second one that sticks in your craw a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah, this idea that who can prove Donald Trump's intent? Look, as I said earlier, intent is proven all the time in courts. That's why one of the reasons why we have juries. I, I spent most of my career as a civil litigator, a minority of my career doing some criminal work as a JAG officer in the in the army um, and taking a cup of coffee as an intern in law school. But here's what I know after decades of litigation, juries decide intent questions. And it is not the case that a defendant can say, well, I didn't really mean to do bad things. And stick to that story. Hey, jury, I didn't really mean to do bad things. And then everybody just closes their briefcase and goes home. Oh, well, he said he didn't mean to. No, it, you you introduce evidence to pr- meet a burden of proof that those denials of criminal intent are false. So the last thing I want to ask you is your column in the Times talked about this being the indictment that will produce the trial that America needs. The thesis being that it's not, as everything we've talked about, it's far from a slam dunk case, but if he is to prove it, it will have, uh, the proof will out. It will have somewhat of a cleansing uh, effect. And even though Trump's diehards will never agree to it, it will show, um, it will it will offer some proof, some way to go forward, a path out of this, you know, morass of questions. However, Trump's biggest offenders, many of them concede, okay, a DC jury, not too hard to convince them. But then when it comes to the Supreme Court, I really doubt that they are going to, you know, many of them said that if the DC jury finds in ways that contradict what you laid out about uh, the need to prove intent, they would see the Supreme Court perhaps overruling this, which would lead us into a situation where Trump's diehards would just have believed this was a political prosecution. Uh, They will say it was a DC jury and therefore is not legitimate. It will go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will overrule it. Then all the Democrats who say the Supreme Court is illegitimate, they will say we need to pack the court. So will it really have, I mean, maybe your answer to this is you doubt that that will be the chain of events, but will it necessarily, even a conviction, have that cleansing uh, quality that you seek? 
Well, as I said, the the Trump diehards know, but we have to really outline who the Trump diehards are. The Trump, the true like always MAGA guys are about as there was this really great time seeing a poll. That's about 37% of the Republican party. When you put that down as part of it, which is enough to be a plurality in a contested primary and gives him an enormous advantage over Republicans because all he needs to secure is just a few other votes from the maybe Trumps because he's got the 37% that are the always pull in a few of the maybe he wins. But so relatively, you know, you're talking about less than 20% of the American population is sort of always Trump. And so it becomes very, very important to educate the persuadable rest of America. And one of the things that a trial has, uh, the what one thing that a trial does that even an indictment doesn't, that all the TV talking heads in the world don't do, is it is a concentrated news event that is covered and uh, and and people are used to following in pop culture. Think of like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, right? Think about all of the trials of the century we've been through. This will be the trial of the new century. And so it's going to be an enormous event. There's going to be a comprehensive discussion of the evidence. And look, you know, it's going to demolish two big Trump talking points that have won over some of the maybe Trumps. And and talking point number one is, hey, we never had our full election fraud claims adjudicated in the run-up to January 6th, which is not true. There were there were cases, there were courts who took a look at a at a bunch of the substantive claims, but you still hear this. We never really got our chance to make our case. And then the other thing that you hear is, well, the January 6th commission was just hopelessly biased. It was Democrats and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Cheney and Kinzinger were anti-Trump. So we never had a chance to fully cross-examine witnesses. We never well, they'll have their chance. So this is going to play out in full view. You're going to see in full view how ludicrously absurd these fraud theories were. Just it, it's They're going to melt away in front of your eyes because they were ludicrously absurd. So I think that you've got a chance to penetrate with the persuadables. But you do raise a really interesting point about the Supreme Court. Some of Trump's, I'm not going to say defenders, maybe people are more skeptical about the indictment say, would say, well, look, the Supreme Court, a lot of these these statutes were interpreted by previous courts, not by this current 6-3 conservative court. And the way the current court has been moving is to more narrowly construe criminal statutes. And so some of these criminal statutes have been broadly construed. They have a point. They have a point that the Supreme Court in recent years has been kind of narrowing the reach of some criminal statutes. And by the way, it's been doing that on a sort of a bipartisan basis. It's both conservative and liberal members of the court have been kind of narrowing the reach of some criminal statutes. But these statutes are a little bit different. So the 18 USC section 241, for example, has more than a century of precedent behind it, well, roughly a century of precedent behind it. And protecting voting rights was an absolutely core reason why the statute was passed. Um, similarly, the, the the fraud conspiracy statute is one that has a hundred years of precedent behind it. And then importantly, the language of the statute on its face 
reaches would seem to reach this conduct. The one that's most interesting, though, is the Section 1512, the obstruction of official proceeding. That is a poorly written statute. And that's a post-Enron statute, right? Uh, I I believe so. But it's poorly written. It's very poorly written. And and so there's a live argument at the D.C. Circuit. And by the way, this statute was the statute used to prosecute one of the many statutes used to prosecute a bunch of the January 6th rioters. And yeah, I think uh, over 300. Yeah. So it's a poorly written statute whose meaning is going to have to be finally resolved by the Supreme Court. Um, And that could come in the next year or so. So um, that statute, I think, is the one that's most vulnerable to a Supreme Court narrowing. I think the other two, the fraud statute and the uh, conspiracy against rights statute, if I'm Trump and my last hope to avoid prison is that the Supreme Court's got to change a hundred years of precedent uh, to get me out of out of jail. I would just go ahead and call my tailor and get fitted for the orange jumpsuit. <laughs> I'd call the Secret Service and say you got to make the case that uh, I got to stay out of jail. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> David French is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. He is the co-host of just a truly excellent podcast that I recommend to you, especially if you are mostly listening to. Uh, liberal, progressive, democratic, uh, legal theories and thinking, which I am, uh, I certainly do, but this is a just fantastic check, the advisory opinions podcast that he does with The Dispatch. David, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. Always a pleasure to join you. And now the spiel. Good news. There is less plastic in the ocean than we thought. A lot less. Dutch researcher Michael Kandorp used advanced 3D imaging, sampling, and good old-fashioned Kandorp can do and discovered there is an 8 million tons a year of plastic going into the ocean. It's about half a million tons. They measured on the oceans, on the beaches, in the rivers, literally 14,977 Measurements from the surface water, 7,114 from beaches, and 120 from the deep ocean. No one has ever done a census like this, and it's good news. So how is the good news received? By emphasizing that there is plenty of bad news still present. Yahoo! There might not be as much plastic in our ocean as we thought, according to a new study, but don't relax yet. Obviously, the climate crisis is ongoing, and there are signs it's getting worse because of the human impact. Look, no one ever said that global warming ceased to exist. Actually, plenty of people have said that. 29 of 50 current Republican senators have essentially said that. It's worse in the House. But my point is, can't we have good news? Sure, said the Society of Environmental Journalists headline. There might be less plastic in the sea than we thought. But read on. Oh, the but read on part was in the headline. Like they, they didn't want to trust people just to read the headline, go home, and possibly not get the idea that some bad stuff is going on too. And here's their first sentence. A new study has some good news, but there is a problem. Ocean pollution appears to be growing fast. Yes, but growing from a level of only 6% of what was thought to be the previous level of plastic in the ocean. 
Look at it this way. Let's say if in your city there were 100 kidnappings last year, that would be a pretty bad problem. Everyone would talk about who's kidnapping all these people. We've got to keep our kids not napped. And then there's this great new report. Maybe Dutch researchers came in and they said, oh, no, no, we counted wrong or the kids came home and they didn't check in. And there were only six actual kidnappings last year. Wouldn't you say that's great news? Or would you say, but wait, Two years ago, there were only five kidnappings. We need to think about the rise in kidnappings. I'm not being blasé. Obviously, plastics in the ocean are a problem, just much, much less of a problem than we thought. Let's acknowledge that. Let's credit Kandorp. He said most, as in 95% or more, of the plastic is large plastic, which is actually good news, too, because it is easier to collect. And he also said, yes, let us now get on collecting it. Let's not delay that. I will soon be on the show interviewing a top ocean researcher, really a communicator of ocean research. Uh, She's British, Helen Chersky. And as she pointed out, I read her book, it was excellent, and I talked to her, there are lots of things to worry about with the ocean. Warming is a big problem. But ocean plastics, especially my bet noir, obsessing about plastic straws in the ocean, it's such a small amount of plastic waste. Straws can't even be measured as an accurate percentage of the waste in the ocean, which, as we're learning, is but 6% of what we thought existed. And what we thought existed, especially as it came to straws, was infinitesimally small. This is just crazy. The New York Times also had a front page article the other week on something else to worry about as concerns the oceans. It's that the currents may be slowing. According to Danish researchers, and I say you should have stuck with the Dutch, but Danish researchers have found, as the New York Times put it, in recent decades, human-driven warming could be causing the currents to slow, and scientists have been working to determine whether and when they might undergo another great weakening, which would have ripple effects for weather patterns across a swath of the globe. That's a responsible way to present the findings. They certainly could be weakening. It could be happening by centuries end, and this could have big effects. CNN instead chose the headline, a crucial system of ocean currents is heading for a collapse. Damn, too bad there's no way out. Too bad it's not just a preliminary survey that indicates that this could happen, which is actually the case. By the way, what would happen if this system were to collapse or just slow down significantly, according to the Times, much of the Northern Hemisphere could cool. The coastlines of North America and Europe could see faster sea level rise. Northern Europe could experience stormier winters, while the Sahel in Africa and the monsoon regions of Asia would most likely get less rain. Now, I'd score those outcomes as good, bad, 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 good. Although, you know, monsoon regions, they do rely on the monsoons. I don't know. I don't know if I could cast my mind forward and think about in 100 years, a couple of people in Cambodia sitting around saying, yeah, it just doesn't monsoon like it used to. Remember how it monsooned when we were kids? That was great. Shame. Lack of monsoons hitting us so often. Maybe. I don't know. Just maybe. The researchers that I've checked in with do not say that amok, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, they don't think amok, running amok, will certainly happen. They think it will, even if it does happen, not certainly have the most dire of consequences. But there is a lot of other near-term oceanic worries. The ocean floor being mined for minerals. That is happening right now and about to happen on a much larger scale in the near future. And that really could have dire consequences. So I say, 
amok, can be amongst our problems, but Kandorp and other scientists really need to get in there and tell us if the worry is quite as dire as we think. And then, if that happens, the guardians of public communication will blare out any bad news and downplay any good news, just as motivated politicians will gainsay any bad news, especially if their donors don't like that news. And thus, we shall commence with the flow of blame and doom as regular as the tides, which, according to scientists, are rising to dangerous levels. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>